0: Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It's been that type of week, folks. So much going on throughout the world. So many ups, downs, highs, lows, whatever it may be due to the emerging coronaviruses and the impact it will have moving forward. And look, we've talked about that all week here at Cracked Rackets. We started our week off. This feels like, honestly, a lifetime ago. But last Sunday night, was it, that they canceled Indian Wells? And again, it's crazy that that was only this past Sunday. But, you know, the ramifications since that, the tour announced, it's going to be suspending for six weeks, obviously beyond tennis. So many concerns moving forward on how this coronavirus is going to impact day-to-day life, not just here in America, but throughout the globe. And obviously, we at Crack Rackets doing our most to keep you informed on how the coronavirus is going to be impacting the tennis world moving forward. We've had a bunch of great guests on to discuss the topic. Early in the week, we had Ben Rothenberg, writer for the New York Times, co-host of the No Challenges remaining post Podcast. We also had Matt Jones, Kentucky Sports Radio founder, to talk about the immediate implications, what we should expect moving forward, what more cancellations, if any, we should be expecting, all of those sorts of things. And look, it can be a little bit of coronavirus overload. Of course, we wanted to keep things light as well, give you guys some sort of output to listen to in case you just need to get you needed an escape, get away from all of that. Uh, so we also released our GSP, talking to the Guardians to Minekariel last week, talking about Kim Kleister's return to tour, Maria Sharapova's retirement now obviously given what's gone on over the past week those or those developments storylines a little bit less important to us on the day-to-day basis than what else is going on in the world uh, but we wanted to talk still more about this coronavirus outbreak how it's going to affect the sport going forward what we've learned about the sport in the way the players the tournaments have reacted to all of the news and that's why we are so excited to bring on today's guest to the show executive editor and senior writer at si now you may know his work from his podcast, Beyond the Baseline, the Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. He's also a contributor at our friends at the Tennis Channel. I, of course, am talking about John Wertheim, who was kind enough to come on our Great Shot podcast today to talk about a little bit of a different aspect of this coronavirus now. We saw the ATP Player Council, the WTA Player Council, immediately holding emergency sessions in response to this virus now the results of those player council meetings still trickling out the immediate impact the cancellations of the events we are well aware of but I wanted to pick John's brain because I know how well connected he is in tennis circles talk about the lack of a la- a formal I should say labor union the fact that players aren't collectively bargaining as one cohort that you know so many of these players are we, what we've learned individual contractors and you know the immediate aftermath the impact it's going to have not just on you know the top 5 players even beyond that the top 20 players financially the security they're going to have over these next 6 months they'll be just fine and you know that that is one storyline but you know players 50 through 1000 anyone with an ATP or WTA point how is this going to impact them and if there was the presence of a labor union, how would that impact uh, how, what we've seen transpire? So I picked John's brain on all of those things, and I mean, no one's as well plugged in as John, so we talked about that. We also talked about some fun things at the end as well, you know, the books, the tennis, other the other tennis content, non-match-related, you listeners can be focused on in case you still need your tennis fix day in, day out. Of course, we here at Crack Racket's going to keep things rocking and rolling, regardless of if there's tennis or not, because we want to be your output, your sense of comfort uh, in your time of need. We want to keep you all entertained, and of course, if we can be of any comfort to anyone, then it's well worth spending the time to talk about the podcast. So that's with all that we talk about with John today and more. I won't lie, we also have a little bit of personal fun for me at the end. Uh, one of John's former colleagues, Richard D. Mack, was actually a guy who stood at my parents' wedding uh, so I wanted to ask him a little bit of fun there and I know that's a little bit of inside baseball maybe on you listeners will care a little bit less about that fact but I had to pick John's brain uh, about that and maybe this will be an excuse my dad might finally listen to one of these podcasts. So with that in mind, here's my conversation with the only one one and only excuse me John Wertheim. joining us now on the podcast you know his work as an executive editor and senior writer at sports illustrated a correspondent for 60 minutes and of course an analyst at tennis channel john wertheim first of all thank you for joining the podcast how are you doing today
1: global uh, pandemic notwithstanding uh, doing doing okay how about you
0: uh no complaints as i uh, as we are recording this right before breaking news from the n t a they're looking to extend an extra year of eligibility for all of the athletes who had their seasons taken away by these coronavirus concerns so first piece of good news we've gotten in weeks it feels like
1: yeah, I mean it'll be interesting to see how that plays out um you know not not all uh NCAA athletes are on full scholarship and I I talked to someone who they said, I'd, I'd love to play uh, and have another season to compete, but I've got, I've got a job that I've committed to. It's going to be really, really complicated, but uh, no, I, I saw that announcement as well. And um, I, it only seems fair. I mean, it must be heartbreaking. Imagine you're a spring season athlete. You're gearing up for in some cases, you're, you're the captain or it's senior year, and then here it is the second week of March, and you're basically told you've played your last game. Um, that's that's really gutting. So that, that the sliver of good news, as you say, good to see some, some common sense prevailed there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just wrote a piece for our website, com. my letter as a tribute to all those seniors who I thought we weren't going to get to see play again. And I'm happy to say that piece is moot now. Hopefully we will get to see as many of them, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, for tennis specifically, you only get four and a half scholarships to use for the men's side. It's going to be interesting to see how the NCAA adjusts to that moving forward. But it feels like we're all going to be having to make adjustments in our lives over these next couple of months. So certainly the NCAA will not be an exception to that. But, uh, you know, the reason we wanted to have you on the podcast today, you are as plugged in as anyone. And obviously, these emerging coronavirus, the implications of it uh, widespread, not just in the tennis universe, but that's what I want to focus on today. I know you were planning to travel to Indian Wells. Obviously, that trip not happening. And they've announced a suspension for the next six weeks on the ATP. Let's start here. Uh, Given the concerns, given all of the questions surrounding what's going to be happening in the future do you think that six week uh mark is a little bit arbitrary do you expect it to extend beyond that
1: i mean the the problem with all this is that there just is no precedent i mean there're no comps for this there's no well we, we look at look at what happened uh, last time we went through something like this you would like to think that this the curve will flatten and eventually uh we will be in a position where we can resume large gatherings i think i think you're right six week sounds conservative i think if it's only six people will be pleasantly surprised but you know this this at least uh here in the u.s and in western europe does does not show signs of uh abating anytime soon so um again if it's i I think if we if we're back on court if we're back uh at large social gatherings uh six weeks from now i think a lot of people will be breathing a sigh of relief
0: absolutely and for you i mentioned that being the atp does it surprise you that the atp and wta haven't coordinated much or at least it feels like they haven't coordinated much in deciding what the plans going to be moving forward
1: yeah i mean you know if if you if you follow tennis as as you and i do you know that um you know unity and common sense doesn't always prevail um on the other hand yeah i mean given the circumstances given how many joint events we're talking about in the next six weeks, it was surprising that the ATP came out with this announcement and then the women did not. I mean, six hours later, the women had their own statement, but it wasn't quite mirroring the men. I was told that there's a lot of contractual fine print here, and if the events cancel, it's a different scenario than if the tours unilaterally say we're suspending business, there are insurance policies, there are sponsor agreements. It's entirely possible that a little bit of semantics in the way this carried out was done to uh, appease contractual language. So in the sense that the ATP and WTA have two separate business models, two separate sets of insurance policies, I guess it makes sense. But as far as uh, the you know as far as optic goes, it did not look like uh, tennis was particularly functional when um, the, the men and the women couldn't be on the same page with this.
0: Yeah, that it's never a good look, and I think that confusion is part of the issue. It's that we all want to know what's going on, and confusion doesn't help anyone. I'm glad you brought up uh, the idea. Uh, I think it was in your mailbag, and you talk about these labor disputes, and you know it's not every day I get to talk to a Penn Law School grad somewhere. My dad's clapping and being like, Alex, are you being inspired right now? Um, but for yeah. you, in your articles, you've talked about how this is exposed just the nature of tennis being individual contractors, how each tennis player is there. A own you know business. It's really what tournaments am I playing? What where am I going? What am I doing with my career? Do you think something like this that impacts at you know every player, no matter regardless of your ranking, will the calls for labor unions in both the ATP the WTA? Do you expect them to grow as a result of this? You are singing my song. Um,
1: <laughs> the events of the last week show why a con- conventional union would benefit the players and how. You know, it doesn't mean one side is right and one side is wrong, but we're seeing an example of, of why it's really problematic to have an outfit that basically accommodates and represents both labor and management. I mean, the the players' interests are not the tournament interests and, and vice versa. And this was a great example. And if there is a conventional union, maybe that union has a plan in place to create a fund when natural disasters and unexpected events prevent players from making a living and maybe if there's a union in place there is something codified about insurance policies Um, the way this all played out i thought was really interesting Um, a week ago when this was first getting traction in indian wells and we were first hearing murmurs that this tournament may not go off the players who were present who were on the ground who traveled to the desert they seem to be the ones agitating for let's just play this event. We're here anyway, you can't just unilaterally call off a tournament. Um, we'll play this one without fans in the stands if we have to, but you can't just call off an event. And then a few days later, when the event was called off, it really seemed as though the players were the ones that were agitating to have this six week delay. And, you know, Novak Djokovic is someone who's I- I've heard was really took a, a leadership role saying, listen we don't know anything about this pandemic. All, we all share one locker room. We all have parents. We all are in contact with people who are in this high-risk group. It takes one guy flying in the back of a plane next to someone who's contagious to suddenly walk into a locker room, and every single person is, is – and I, and I think in retrospect, I mean, it's this news cycle is moving very quickly, but four or five days later, that makes a lot of sense. So, So the players in a very short amount of time went to – wait a second, let's try to play this tournament anyway, we're all here, and this is money you're taking off the table, to we need to get out in front of this, we need to get home, it's not safe for us to be here. So I, I think in that sense, uh, the players come in for a lot of credit, really putting long-term health and safety uh, above their, their immediate financial interests. I think it was the the smart move, and again, I did think that this whole episode shows that it's not a question of right versus wrong, but just the, the interests of players and the interests of tournaments are not necessarily uh, going to align very often, and that's why the players really need separate representation.
0: Certainly, and there are ATP and WTA player councils, notable names on both. I know Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys for the women, and obviously you know Federer Djokovic, Nadal for the men I, I don't want to call those player councils toothless because that doesn't seem fair, but how you know how much sway, how much decision making power do those two players councils have right now because it feels like it should be players leading the way. as you mentioned, the interests of tournaments and players are never going to fully align.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the issue has always been that when, when we say players, are we talking about Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, who have one set of pressures and one set of means? And, I mean, we see even in this case, I mean, Nadal, who, I let's be clear, I mean, I think the guy deserves every penny he's made, but Nadal can say the heck with this, get on a private plane and fly home to Mallorca. There are guys who are not ranked that much lower than him, who are on the other side of the net who are really scrambling and saying, I need to reassess how I'm going to pay my bills for the next six weeks without any prize money coming in. So I I think the top players have immense power, and I think they know that. I think when you talk about the players as a whole, and we're not just talking about, uh, you know, it's it's not a three-person tour. It's not an eight-person tour. We're talking about membership of, you know, that, that goes into triple digits. I think then it becomes a lot more complicated, and I think, honestly, I think the power dilutes a little bit. I mean, I think these promoters say, listen, I'll bend over backwards to get Rafa Nadal in my draw, but do I really need the guy who's ranked number 65 Is he selling a single extra ticket? And I think that's where, in the past, uh, things have gotten a little tricky, that the, the top players have a lot of power, and you move outside the top 10, and the players have very little power. And... The tournaments sort of have to uh, have to gauge what's the ideal draw size. How many people do I want to be feeding in the lounge? I mean, something as, as silly as that is a conversation that's you know, they have that year after year after year.
0: Yeah, and in your most recent article on SI, How Will Coronavirus Impact Tennis Going Forward?, you wrote that you once heard someone say the split for revenue is, you know, 70 30, with that last 30 being ticket receipts and the, the the money the tournaments make at the gate. Given the money and financial concerns for so many of these players, would it surprise you at all to see, you know, or, or almost like the 50s and 60s before the open era, where maybe you see these little four person events pop up and they won't be? be sold to the public but they'll try and sell the broadcasting rights do you think players will try and get creative moving forward because they simply put they need to make money
1: I think depending on the player and the circumstance there is a market for some enterprise in these uh in these next you know six weeks if 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 that if it goes longer than that and you know I've I've already heard I mean it's, it's all been sort of in the in the context of a thought exercise but people have said you know I don't know would would tennis fans pay $1.99 if if Roger Federer streamed his practices if if you had you know a, a Federer Nadal fun fun match being played at the Nadal Academy in front of no fans could could you stream that and would there be a market for that um you know i mean i think fans the the fact that these public gatherings and the the fact that uh, the sort of conventional sporting events aren't allowed to take place complicates things but I do think that players have an opportunity to sort of show their enterprising side and, and get creative in these next few weeks here. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you had two top tier players playing, uh, you know, 100 points out of their hand and it was a streaming proposition, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a market for that. I mean, the fact that we have no sports whatsoever um, is really, again, unprecedented is the word that we're, uh, we're bandying about. A lot in this this entire discussion but i think an enterprising tennis player can um might might have a real opportunity with uh no other sports never never mind tennis with no other sports being played live for all intents um maybe there's uh maybe there's some opportunity here
0: yeah certainly in the era of live streams i mean if yeah, you can take my 199 now if that's going to be the price. I would 100% be in on that. Um, I know we, your time is brief, so I want last coronavirus-related question, and I want to ask you some other things real quickly. But in terms of the schedule moving forward, the big, you know, a lot of people don't realize tennis is... a 50-week a year sport, but uh, the big events coming up down the road: French Open, Wimbledon. Uh, do you imagine uh, the tours will try as long as possible to not cancel those events? That they will do whatever is in their powers to make sure those things are played, even if it's without fans.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's up to the tours. I think, um, and I think you nailed it. I mean, I think what we may end up happening is is going to uh, going to the FFT the french open going to the lta going to wimbledon saying basically are you willing to hold this event if there are no fans in the stands and just do this as a broadcast proposition um i was told one of the issues with that is that it really complicates the insurance proposition right you can't go to your insurer and say hey listen all this revenue i lost they turn around and say wait you hold you held the event anyway you still got your broadcast money um I don't know what the role of government will be. I mean, again, I I was told – I mean, now it sounds like it was a year ago, but I was told on Monday and Tuesday that Indian Wells was – I mean, uh, that Miami was hell-bent on holding the event, and it wasn't until local government, state government got involved that uh, they called off the event. So the French Open may have every intention of being held this year, but if, you know, if if Macron and if the the French government says we're not going to allow events like this to be staged – um they lose their decision making agency i do think that for the sake of tennis as as a whole it really is a sport that's become spun around these four these four spindles of the majors and it's deeply disappointing to lose indian wells it's deeply disappointing that we're going to go 6 weeks without tennis but when we start talking about majors i mean they yeah you know, they played the french open in world war 2 i mean when we start talking about losing majors then it's it's a really serious issue and it's a serious issue for broadcast partners it's obviously a serious issue for fans and players you look at what percentage of players revenues come at the majors you look at all of these apparel and clothing deals that have bonuses for winning majors um if there is no french open if there is no wimbledon 2020 is really a grim year for uh for the sport
0: no, certainly. And fans of tennis right now will have uh, you're looking for things to do watching YouTube highlights of all of these old matches. Or if you haven't yet now, this is the time to read Strokes of Genius, Federer, Nadal and, and the Greatest Match Ever Played. All of these tennis books moving forward. Um, And in fact, just on a content front for you, can us fans still expect your SI columns weekly on tennis? Uh,
1: yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's if it brings a little pleasure to tennis fans. I'm happy to uh to, to keep writing. And I, I think there's sort of creative ways to still talk about tennis and involve players and have discussions. Um obviously it would be far preferable if we had real matches and real results and uh, real action that we could uh that we could talk about. But um sure, I, I will uh I will continue doing uh, my column and uh we we all wish we have live tennis to write about, but this sport has enough history and enough texture and enough talking points We, we should be able to uh pretend this is uh an, an unfortunate off season and we'll we'll get through it.
0: No for sure I know uh, again for all of us uh, it's about watching highlights now and all of these different things and yeah uh, it will be you know it provides any sort of comfort we can provide that's why we're trying to continue to do these podcasts here at Crack rackets Okay this could be a completely separate topic but last three questions for you I know you have had the opportunity in the past to go to the Sloan Analytics conference in Boston did you have the chance to go to the Sloan conference this year and the larger question here is what do you see the role of analytics in tennis being moving forward
1: oh man Um, i did not make it to sloan uh this year unfortunately um but i I recommend anyone especially uh if you're younger and you envision a, a career in uh in sports analytics it's it's a fun weekend and i you know tennis it's really interesting i mean i think tennis was way behind and then suddenly we seem to have had this this surge in analytics and now I, I feel as though there's, there's a little bit of backlash. And um, it's, you know, I, I think some of it is skepticism about the numbers. I mean, tennis is tough. it, it would be great. I mean, I, I always, you know, the, the more data, the better. And you, you sort of pick what's useful and what's not. Um, you, you never want less information. But I do think a lot of tennis analytics and a lot of the tennis data just doesn't really tell you all that much. And so much of tennis is situational. And so much is dependent on the player on the other side of the net and circumstance and a point for all can be wildly different than uh, you know a, a point in the in the first game of the match and we, we even see this with with Hawkeye review right I mean some, some players use it for just to blow off steam and they want to take an extra second and they need to collect themselves some people legitimately challenge some players have a high serving percentage because they're nailing their serve. Other players have a high serving percentage because they're not taking risks and they're almost being too cautious getting the ball in the box. So I feel like you you never want to say we want less data. I mean, data is awesome and we should uh, find new and creative ways to use it. But I do feel like we very quickly got to this point where people said, well, wait a second, that's not really telling me what I need to know. And I also feel like that the players still have not entirely bought in. And I've, I've heard a lot of coaches and a lot of players saying that there's gotten to be this attitude of you're just, you're jamming too much into my head. Just let me play my game. And you've heard the same thing in other sports. I mean, or the members of the Dallas Mavericks said that when, when Mark Cuban was giving him spreadsheets. But I do think that tennis hasn't really figured out its relationship with, with data quite yet. And, uh, I get the feeling that there's – surprisingly enough, there's, there's been some, some blowback by the, by the players themselves, which is uh, a little problematic.
0: No, certainly. I mean, you can see all the IBM stat trackers in the world that says, hey, get the rally beyond eight shots, and John Isner's more likely to lose the rally than not. It's like, well, yeah, I've watched him play. That seems fairly obvious. So right. I agree with you there. And because it's so specific, you see a backhand weakness, a forehand weakness, whatever it may be. Uh, analytics are only going to capture so much. But so, yeah, that's a, interesting. We can explore that one. I'm reserving the right to bring you back on this podcast at a later date. Last two one, and they'll be very quick, very fun, I promise. If you are recommending one match highlight to watch on YouTube outside of that Federer Nadal Wimbledon final, what would you pick for fans who just have that craving for tennis right now?
1: Oh man, um, I give me some more. I mean, what, are, we, are we looking for <laughs> uh, a classic match? Or are we looking for? I mean, anything early Williams sister is uh, is a good watch. Um, man, I
0: there's a lot know, of good ones.
1: Yeah, I was. I mean more recently you know Don potro team from the u.s open mm-hmm. i mean there there have been some classic matches there have been fun matches um you can go back and watch uh the super saturday matches from from 1984 um i always like sort of looking at players earlier in their career and uh seeing how much they they have or haven't changed um i recently was taking a look um you can watch i don't know if the whole match is on there but i saw a lot of clips when sheriff retired retired of the uh the 2004 Wimbledon final—you can go down the the rabbit hole pretty quickly, and um, you know you Google Roger Federer trick shots, and you'll um, the. The overhead winner off the overhead. Um, you you can have some fun with uh, t- tennis highlights. will will keep you going for the next six weeks.
0: Oh, without question, and again, another point you made in your most recent column: the cross-era comparison. Go watch tennis from 2004, folks, and tell me that the game hasn't improved. All right, last question, because I know you have to go. You, the random thought, and this is really inside baseball for just me and you. But my dad grew up with, best friends with, lived in college with Richard D. Mac. Any funny Richard D. Mac oh, stories man. for me?
1: Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> wow. You, uh, at, at Michigan, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And this, my dad doesn't listen to the podcast. He's like, I hear enough of you. But I was like, but I'm getting someone from Sports Illustrated. And he was like, if you ask a DMac question, I might listen.
1: No. Richard Richard Mac is the uh, epitome of mensch. And uh, <laughs> he was, um, I, I think I was, sat behind him at the U.S. Open in 1990 when he was at an early date with the woman who is now his wife and he was a perfect gentleman. Um, I, he's a tremendous, uh, he's a great toastmaster. He always wrote (laughs) tremendous letters when, uh, when people stopped and started when, when people moved on from sports illustrator when they arrived, um, a a thoroughly deep, I have no stories of Richard D wearing a lampshade and, uh, (laughs) embarrassing himself, but I, I only have, uh, I only have nice things to say. That's really fun. I actually ran into someone who was uh, college friends with his wife. So, uh, a lot of Richard D. Mack this week. But uh, <laughs> that is a curveball. I did not expect that one.
0: I always got to throw one curveball at my guest. I believe he stood at my parents' wedding. So, yes, big fan no, I- of Mr. D. Mack and side. But, John, I know you got to go. Thank you so much for giving us your time. And again, I'm reserving the right to bring you back on for our listeners who don't know about your podcast. Really quick plug where they can find your stuff. Oh
1: man. Uh the podcast is on uh I think it's you know
0: beyond the baseline
1: on SI dot com, wherever podcasts are sold, Amazon Stitcher. Um the mailbag comes out every Wednesday and a lot of people have uh asked me to send it to them as a newsletter form, so we've been doing more of that. But um no, I mean tennis is my uh tennis is my, my, I always say my guilty pleasure. So, uh, it's good to have podcasts like this. Good to have fans, young fans, and, uh, the sport will, uh, will be back. These are strange times for all of us, but, um, I mean, I think whatever it is, six, six weeks would be lovely. It could be more, but, um, I stress that we will eventually get back to talking about, uh, you know, well, will Dominic team win his first major and not, uh, whether players should be streaming their practices because tennis fans have nothing to watch for the next six weeks.
0: No, certainly. Well, again, John, thank you so much for taking the time and I look forward to seeing your smiling face on Tennis Channel. You got it. Pleasure. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim, and again, to hear more from him, listen to his Sports Illustrated podcast, Not That You Need Me to Tell You, at Behind the Baseline. You can find his mailbags, all of his fantastic work, at si.com. Again, a big thank you to John for taking the time. I know how busy he is with Tennis Channel appearances, with all of the things he does, so huge shout out to him. and. Again, apologies. I had to ask him about Richard D. Mac at the end because it's not oftentimes I get to hear about someone who stood at my father's wedding. Uh, so that was just a little bit of an inside baseball question for me. I do apologize for that. But moving forward, again, we still plan on having a full slate of Crack Rackets content ready for you, the listeners. Some incredible news. Coming out, we found out the NTA going to consider, uh, and strongly considering, it sounds like they're going to do it, granting an extra year of eligibility to all of those seniors who had their final years of college cut off by this coronavirus, and that's fantastic news. Now, the implications of that? We're not quite sure. Some of you may not be aware the men's tennis teams limited to four and a half scholarships. Now, if you're keeping seniors from the previous year, uh, that's an issue. And, you know, that's something we are going to explore and more moving forward throughout the week. We also know these players, and I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but given that they have a bit of downtime now, uh, we've got some things in the works, a lot of fun things going on at Cracked Rackets, hoping to get as many of those players on our Cracked Interviews podcast as possible moving forward. We will continue to have some Fun, you know, I have time to write again, so we're going to have some great written content on our website as well. I wrote about Francis Tiafo a couple of weeks ago, ago. I've got a couple of other fun things going on. We've got some very fun new podcast and video content coming your way, as well as the written content at Crack Rackets. Now, if you are a Patreon subscriber, listen to this, uh, you may have already heard some of those fun new things we have going on. But for the rest of you, be on the lookout for all of that and more. And again, such a thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, in these you know times. We don't know when we're going to get to a tournament next. So any support we can get from all of you is so, so appreciated. So thank you so much. And to anyone who hasn't checked it out yet, please uh, be sure to go check out our Patreon, patreon.com. Look up Cracked Rackets. Shout out as always to the super producers, Max Fliegner and Danny Westoff for the f*** of an editing job they continue to do day, out, day in, day out, and again. You know, Westoff's up to some really cool stuff on our website, on our YouTube channel. So please, the second we get to a 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, I know he'll stop hounding me to keep plugging it. So go check out our YouTube channel. We've got a really fun video series uh, that we are planning to debut this week. Should I give you the title? I'll give you the title. It's called Overserved. Now, that's all you're going to get for now. A little bit of a tease, but uh, Overserved is a pun for many reasons and i'm not going to explain that pun yet you'll see what it means moving forward but hopefully again a nice little sneak peek for what we have moving forward and uh... you know it's it's time for us to get creative here at cracked rackets and in case you guys haven't learned by now that is the thing i enjoy doing most so for our super producers, Max Flieger and Daniel Westhoff, for our friends at Diadem Sports, again, diademsports.com, use the promo code CR50, our friends at Aerobar, go to their website, use the promo code CRACK34, discounts on your orders. For our wonderful guest, John Wertheim, and from all of us here at both Crack Records and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin, you know what we say, hey, great shot, and we'll see you all later in the week. Thanks, everyone.